Welcome back to the 106th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talking about the debt ceiling, how the GOP is slamming some of Biden's new housing loan rules, and how Wokana is gearing up for a future run for president. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So should the debt ceiling be passed clean as the terminology goes nowadays? You know, obviously this argument comes up every few years and it really never dies. And we just saw McCarthy and his little cohort pass a bill that will put the debt ceiling argument on the plate of the Senate and Joe Biden. But what should we do? Should they push back and say, no, we want a clean debt limit increase? Or maybe actually come to the negotiating table and start whittling away at some of the things McCarthy and the Republicans want? Tell me what you think down in the comment section. Love to hear your opinions. All right, let's jump to our first article. This one comes from Common Dreams. MAGA Economic Sabotage. Uh, 217 House Republicans passed debt ceiling bill with harmful cuts. So as I mentioned, and if you haven't seen it in the news, well, here it is. The... McCarthy GOP inside the House actually was able to come together. They were able to unite and they were able to pass a bill that proposes different cuts while also increasing the debt ceiling. So if you're on the Republican side, yes, okay, McCarthy, he came together, he got it done. If you're on the Democrat side, what is this guy doing? Why just let us pass the debt ceiling without any cuts? You know, we're still coming out of a hot, hot economy. We had to deal with COVID. We're dealing with supply chain issues. We need the flexibility right now to deal with some of these things. Or if maybe they're a Democrat that's a little bit more transparent, I, I say transparent, one that might be more forward with the thinking. And even some Republicans, it's, no, we just need, we just need more spending money. We just need more money so that we can spend on different programs in order to entice our voters to come back and actually put us back in office so we can keep our power. Maybe that's a little cynical on my part to describe certain Republicans and Democrats that way, but I feel like that's the going trend. Because if you look back, when Trump was in office, they raised the debt ceiling. Well, sorry, when Trump was in office and the Republicans were in control of Congress, they just raised the debt ceiling in order to get his certain programs through. When Democrats are in power, they just raise the debt ceiling to get their certain different budget addendums through as well. So it doesn't, it only seems that it becomes important when it is a party who controls one part of Congress or all of Congress and the president is of the opposite party and they can use it as a leverage point. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think we should be limiting spending for the most part overall. But I do understand in these situations when you are the House of Representatives and you are ever so barely Republican controlled and you really can't get a large bevy of your policy items passed through the upper chamber, 
into the Senate and then also get it past the president, you're going to use the limited leverage you have, especially when it comes to the debt ceiling. But we just need to acknowledge that this is only ever really an issue when one party is not fully in control of all the levers of power in the executive and the legislative branches, and they can use it to really bend the arm of the other party. So let's get to the pushback. Let's get to the outrage, because this is from Common Dreams, obviously a left-wing publication. So what are their main issues with what's going on here? Quote, A wide range of advocacy groups and Democratic lawmakers on Wednesday fiercely denounced Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives for narrowly, narrowly passing their debt ceiling scam, containing, quote, extreme harmful cuts against average Americans to protect billionaire tax breaks. The so-called Limit, Save, Grow Act was unveiled last week by GOP House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of California and passed 217 to 215 with four Republicans, Andy Biggs, Ken Buck, Tim Burchett, and Matt Gates joining Democrat opponents and three lawmakers not voting, end quote. So, you see the first attack they go for here. Oh, well, they're protecting the billionaire, their billionaire tax breaks, and they're actually cutting services that will go to the everyday American. This is not necessarily untrue. In order to get certain cuts, they're going to go into programs and say, okay, where can we take a little bit of money off the top? Do we have to be spending all this money? What's the cost-benefit analysis of spending this extra $50,000 here, $50,000 there? One of the ones that may be talked about a lot on the Republican side of the aisle is the fact that they're actually putting a restriction on some welfare funds that you receive that you have to prove that you're going out there and getting a job. And then the money that you get will be supplemental on top of that job. So there are obviously some restrictions that Republicans are going to tout and they're going to talk about a lot more and say, well, of course, this is common sense. You shouldn't just be sucking off the teat of the government. You actually have to prove that you're working and trying to better yourself. You can't just get free money and sit on your couch and do nothing which obviously is very limited, and some people may not just sit on their couch and they just may not get hired and they need this welfare money. So, you know, there's a little bit of clash with reality there, but there are also some people who probably do sit on their couch and are like, oh, that government check, huh, $600 a month? I can basically pay for all my food with that. You know, I'm living in my friend's house. He's letting me crash on his couch, so... Yeah, I can get away with that. There's probably a mix of both people there. So, obviously, you can see where the narratives are starting to be drawn. And you can see when the Republicans tout some things that they're like, oh, yeah, these are common sense reforms. Of course, we don't need to keep spending money in this way. And the other main point you hear is that they're limiting spending to 2022 levels. That's only a year ago. If you really wanted to be super hardcore and really break down some of these extra spendings that we've been doing over the last few years, they would take it back before COVID, before a lot of money was injected into the U.S. economy. So they're, they're being pretty moderate. At least that's how it feels. And to be honest, I don't necessarily think McCarthy, I think McCarthy knows a lot of this is not going to get passed. But like I said earlier, they're using it as leverage. They're saying, okay, 
we got this moderate thing passed with a few little hooks in it to entice some of the more conservative members of the Republican Party. So he was able to get it through the House, and now he's giving it to Schumer, Chuck Schumer in the Senate, and Biden and saying, look, you didn't think I could get it passed. You didn't think that I was going to be able to get enough votes. And that's why you were saying, oh, we just need a clean, we need a clean debt ceiling raise. Because they, they just kept saying this because they believed that McCarthy wasn't actually going to be able to get this passed. He did get it passed now. So now he can go to them and say, look, I'm putting something forward. Now you come to the negotiating table and you have to at least sit down and try to come to a middle ground with us so that we can get this thing passed. And they got, let's do about two months here. They have a little bit less than two months in order to get this passed. It's the end of April. By the time you're hearing this, it will be May 1st. And the debt ceiling decision has to be made by June. So they're giving it plenty of time. And if I think personally, if you keep hearing this, oh, we need a clean debt ceiling increase, we're not going to do anything unless it's a clean increase, then they are obviously and willfully neglecting to do their jobs. Now, am I saying that McCarthy did the best thing he could do here? No. But if you keep hearing this language that we're only going to sign it if it's a clean debt ceiling increase, they are not doing their jobs. They are going to put their constituents in a terrible position just because they don't want to deal with certain cuts or they don't want to deal with the politics of some of these policies that are being proposed and they don't want to have to sit down and negotiate and say, well, this is more valuable than this. This program needs more funding than this. And we think that this program should stay the way it is. They don't want to do any of that. They just want the more money and they want those programs to stay as they are. So they don't have to go back to their constituents and say, Oh, well I had to cut this program, but we kept this other program and that'll make some people happy, but it'll also piss off others. They don't want to deal with the politics of the situation. All right. So, what are the actual, what are the cuts that are being proposed by the Republicans? Let's get to a quote here before I get way too far off track. Quote, nearly every Republican in the U.S. House just voted to slash the already inadequate funding of the Social Security Administration, said Social Security Works Executive Director Alex Lawson in a statement. Quote, cuts to SSA are cuts to Social Security, and we will hold every single one of these members accountable, he said. This vote shows that Republicans are united in their support of cutting Social Security, while Democrats are united in support of a clean debt limit increase with no cuts to Social Security or any other benefits, end quote. So that's a pretty bold claim, and I don't necessarily disagree. If they're trying to cut funding that goes to the Social Security Administration, they're actually cutting people that work there. So it may become more difficult to dispute not getting enough money or Social Security or be able to reconcile any issues because they may not have as much staff there on the premises. But then also, let's combat this last thing here, which is they're to- the Democrats are the only ones in support of Social Security. Guess what happens if the debt ceiling gets defaulted upon? If it doesn't get increased and the U.S. government defaults? What happens? Oh, your 401k payments start to go away. Your social security payments start to go away. The average American citizen loses social security dollars. So actually, by ensuring that we do a responsible debt ceiling increase, 
and we don't default, we're actually making sure that senior citizens will have access to their social security funds. So you have to weigh that. You have to weigh those two options. One, we do nothing about the social security. I guess technically there are three options in this case. One, you have a different deal that doesn't cut money going to the social security administration. Two, you just cleanly pass the debt ceiling so then people will still have access to their money. Or three, which is what the conservatives are doing right now, is you offer cuts to the SSSA and you make sure that it's still palatable for Democrats so that the U.S. doesn't default and then people lose access to their Social Security. So the Republicans are trying to have the best of both worlds. They want to make sure people still get their Social Security, but they're still trying to find places that need to be cut. Is it necessarily fair? That is up to you to decide. But it's not as straightforward and as much of a, they're just evil for doing this, as this article would like to assume though they do have some good points. All right, let's read the last part here, which is really highlighting the hypocrisy on the side of the Republicans. Quote, leading up to the vote, the bill's opponents have pointed out that while House Republicans claim cuts are necessary for any bill that allows additional debt, in 2017, GOP lawmakers passed and then-President Donald Trump signed a law to provide corporations and rich individuals with tax breaks which the Congressional Budget Office estimated would increase the federal deficit by nearly $2 trillion over a decade. End quote. So, yeah, that is something to point out. If you are so infatuated with the idea of lowering the deficit, then why won't you tax more of the wealthier population? That's a, that's a, could be a very valid argument. And if you would ask Republicans, they would say, by alleviating the tax burden on these corporations, they are able to spur more jobs and therefore allow the U.S. government to bring in more money from those people getting the benefits from those jobs. It increases the overall GDP. It stimulates more companies coming to the U.S. Therefore, you can tax those companies more. Now, whether both of those arguments bear out economically, it's really hard to tell. There's lots of research that says one thing, and there's lots of research that says another. But depending on which side you come down on this, you're going to read this and say, yeah, that is hypocritical. Or you're going to say, well, you don't understand what's going on. You don't truly understand how these tax cuts are benefiting one side or the other. So the reason I wanted to point out this hypocrisy is, one, highlight where the Democrats are coming from. Two, highlight how the Republicans would normally respond. And three, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to show that everybody has their perspective. Everybody has their talking points. Everybody is going to shovel a whole bunch of stuff your way over the next month and a half about this debt ceiling argument. And you need to take in all the information you can and you need to sit down and parse through it and see which arguments you agree with and which ones you don't. Don't take anything necessarily directly at face value because I read this article first yesterday I was like, ooh, yeah, no, this does sound unfair. And then I listened to a few different podcasts this morning. And I was like, oh, wait, no, that, that sounds unfair. And then I had to come back and synthesize all of those thoughts for this podcast. Because at the end of the day, everybody has their lean. Everybody has their bias. And if you know that going in, you can come out thinking a little bit more critically 
about what you're hearing or reading and come to your own conclusions because you're all smart people. If you're listening to this podcast and you made it this far, you are a smart person. I, I congratulate you. Yes, I am clapping for you. You are officially a smart person. You could get a little badge that says that, and I believe that you are capable of doing some critical thinking, even though, you know, it's not easy all the time. Trust me, I, I still have a hard time thinking through a lot of different things. But one issue that I didn't have a hard time thinking through was the one that was mentioned in this next article by Fox News. Quote, Senate GOP slams perverse Biden rule forcing people with good credit to subsidize high-risk mortgages. So if you have been paying attention, you may have heard this political talking point. Oh, the people that are really responsible, the ones who have worked to have a good credit score are actually going to have to start paying a little bit more money when it comes to their housing loans. So I'll read you a quote here. It is a bit of a long one, so stick with me, and then we'll dive into it a little bit. Quote, Senate Republicans on Wednesday accused the Biden administration's Federal Housing Finance Agency of playing politics with the U.S. housing market by forcing people with good credit to subsidize high-risk mortgages and warned that doing so would put individual home buyers and the entire market in danger. Senator Roger Marshall, Republican of Kansas, Tom Tillis, and 16 other GOP senators issued this warning in a letter to the FHFA director, Sandra Thompson, that also demanded the details of how this policy decision was made, a possible sign that the legality of the move could be challenged. Quote, this announcement scheduled to take effect on May 1st, 2023, will invert the common sense risk financing structure at the GSES in an effort to decrease mortgage rates for riskier individuals with low credit scores and forcibly raise rates for those with higher scores, they wrote, referring to the government-sponsored entities and mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So, Let's take a little break. Let's let's think about what they're saying here. One, they're saying that the government is stepping into the housing market and saying, for you riskier borrowers, for you young, maybe historically discriminated against populations that normally don't get better rates on loans, or for you people who have not necessarily been so prudent in ensuring your credit score is high, meaning you're paying off your debt in a timely manner, you're doing it every single month, you're not incurring too much debt, you're not using your credit card too much. It's saying for those people, you know what, we're actually going to make it a little bit easier. We're going to make it a little bit easier for you to get a loan, and we're going to make it so that you don't have to pay an extra $40 a month, $60 a month, and they move that cost to the people who have higher credit scores. So there are two sides of this conversation. There's the one. Well, hey, I've worked really hard to have a really good credit score. Why are you punishing me for that? Why are you telling me that I have to take on a little bit extra payment so that it makes it easier for these other people who haven't been doing a good job, who haven't been really putting in the time to be financially responsible? Why do I have to take on their expenses? Why do I have to do this so that they can get a house? And then there's the other side, which is the thing that actually came to my mind first, which is the people who are the most 
financially responsible and have the highest credit scores are actually probably in the best position and have the best temperament in order to take on those extra costs. Do I think it's fair? No. But if you are saying, okay, well, somebody's going to have to take on this cost. If If your end goal is to lower the cost for riskier individuals and you say, well, we want to make it easier for them. We're going to take 20 or $40 off. Should it just be a government subsidy? Uh, I feel like that's interfering with the market a little bit too much. Maybe we don't want to be portrayed as just encouraging people to have worse finances because then that would encourage people to not pay off their debt as much and have lower credit scores. So maybe instead of that, instead of that, we're going to pass that little bit of uh, extra cost onto the people who are financially responsible and probably are in a better position to be able to handle that cost. Now, like I said, is that fair? Does that bear out in a smart economic way? No. But if you're thinking, well, who can actually take it on? Who's most likely to be able to pay it off month by month? It's the people who are more fiscally responsible. So that's laying out the just the pure fairness or rational thought processes behind the rule itself. Now where the real concern comes in for a lot of people, which is you are encouraging people who are not paying off their bills at a regular rate, who are not as liquid or do not have as many assets that are easily, that they could easily sell or have a really good track record with paying off loans. Basically a riskier class of people You're making it really easy or easier for them to buy mortgages. Does this remind anybody of anything? Does it it sound like something we've done before? Does it sound like a policy that we've taken on that may have led to a little bit of trouble? Maybe for my younger viewers, it happened when you were around, you know, third grade. It was probably when you were eight years old. It freaking sucked. And it made life really hard for a lot of people. Does that does that ring any any bells? Or maybe for my older generation, it was one of the largest financial crises we had in the last thirty years. Does that does that ring a bell? Oh yeah, there we go. It's starting to tick. It's starting to tick. Two thousand eight. Yes, we made it easier for people who were not as financially stable, who were more risky with their personal finances, who were not in a position to actually be buying a house, we made it easier for them to buy a house. So then there was a housing bubble. Then when something happened, when it crashed, they were left in a terrible position and banks had to basically say, okay, you're going into foreclosure. You can't pay off your house. And then these people that were using a house as a way to become more mobile, to step up in the United States economy, to get out of the lower class and get into the middle class, now they were shoved right back down into the lower class because they just had the house that they were working for ripped away from them because somebody made an irresponsible decision that they were a good person to loan money to in order to buy the house or because they were given a rate that they couldn't pay off if something terrible happened. And... This is just subsidizing people who are more risky to do the exact same thing all over again. And, you know, will it have the same effect? Maybe, maybe not. 
All I'm saying is I feel like we're going towards a financial crisis within the next two years. Then again, I also said that two years ago, and it didn't it didn't come to fruition. We've seen high inflation, but we haven't seen a huge market crash that's indicative of the Great Recession or the Great Depression. So maybe I'm just wrong. But if this policy is put into place and lots of people who want a home but can't necessarily afford it or, or aren't in the best position financially to afford it, They may get a home, try to build up their net worth, really try to be mobile and try to be try to be a part of the American experience and build up from the bottom. And then a crash happens. They can't pay. They get fired for some reason. They can't pay that loan anymore. And then we just have a cycle that disenfranchises the people that are at the bottom who can't ever get out because they were told oh, we're going to have this really great program for you. We're going to get you into this nice house that you wouldn't normally be able to afford. And don't worry, you know, as long as the interest rates stay as they are, it's fine. As long as you pay monthly, it's fine. And then something terrible happens and they get screwed over. So we'll see how it pans out. Lots of criticism about that one. But at the end of the day, only time will tell. All right, let's jump to our last article. This one comes from The Nation Ro Khanna isn't running for president yet. So here's a little bit of his record, and then we'll talk about what his future looks like. Quote, Khanna is earning high marks in politically vital states such as Iowa and South Carolina. As a representative from Silicon Valley who wants to bring tech jobs to rural regions of those states. At the same time, he's becoming the go-to cable TV commentator on everything from Donald Trump and his indictments to turbulence in the banking industry, from resetting relations between the U.S. and China to the debt ceiling debate, and to the importance of holding corporate railroads to account after East Palestine, Ohio, the train wreck. He's grabbing headlines with his bold pronunciations about the future of the Democratic Party, including a call for ailing California Senator Dianne Feinstein to resign, and a gutsy endorsement of progressive representative Barbara Lee, quote, a hero of mine in the anti-war movement, end quote, in the crowded 2024 primary to replace Feinstein. So you can see he really has been building up his reputation. And even a few podcasts ago, well, I say a few podcasts ago, at this point it was probably 70 podcasts ago, I said, what's the future of the Democratic Party here? Are they going to bring up Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, and then towards the end of the, the list, towards the bottom, I did say, well, there's always, there is Rokana. They could, they could pull him up if they're looking for a more progressive candidate, but a more moderate version of Bernie Sanders, basically. So now you're starting to see the wheels turn a little bit here. And they're saying, hey, it's not a 2024 thing, but he's really taking this slow. He's building up his reputation. He's getting his name out there. He's being mentioned by major ne- news like The Nation, He's even making his way onto small, tiny podcasts. Oh, look at that. He made his way into the discussion here. I guess his campaign is really working. And he understands the ins and outs of the election process because he was working for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and I also believe 2020. Quote, so Kana knows what he's going to be doing next year but he's also sending some powerful signs about what he might be doing in 2028 or 2032. The 46-year-old Democrat's ambitious schedule and rising profile 
has publications describing the congressman as, quote, future Democratic hopeful Ro Khanna. Khanna doesn't go that far in talking about when and if he might seek the nation's top job. But if he does run, he'll do more than the average representative. A savvy political observer who served as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Department of Commerce under President Obama and who co-chaired Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' bid for the party's 2022 nomination. So it was 2022, not 2026. My bad. Or sorry, 2016. He's a well-established presence in the circles where presidential campaigns take shape, end quote. So you can see he's been playing the long game here. He's really been building up his reputation. He's making sure he's in contact with all the right people. He's making sure that he truly observes how this process works And he's been placing himself on important committees and in the news media. He's always willing to take on interviews and talk about particular issues. And then also how they mentioned earlier, how he's coming out against Dianne Feinstein. He's not trying to be, from my understanding here, he's not trying to be mean. He's not trying to say, oh, you're incompetent. You need to get out. He's saying you are currently inhibiting our Senate majority. We're now reliant on people like Cinema and Manchin. Again, because Feinstein is not present for any Senate votes because she's not doing well. He's saying, you need to step down for the strength of the party. And it's gotten him a lot of heat. And Nancy Pelosi came out against him and said, you shouldn't be saying these sort of things. They're kind of sexist. But he stood his ground. He said, I don't care if you're going to call me sexist. I don't care. It's not about me. It's about the strength of the party. It's about showing that the Democrats win out at the end of the day. And if you want a leader, if you want someone to lead your party in the highest office of the nation, that does sound like something you may want. So he really is, I'm not saying he's maniacal and he's sitting back there, oh, yes, I will say that Diane Feinstein needs to get out of her office and this will set me up perfectly for 2024. No, he's not sitting there saying that, but he's making all the right moves. And we'll see where he is in four years after Biden gets in or maybe even eight years if a DeSantis gets in, but we'll see. And I personally think it better be 2024 because I don't know if his political capital will last until 2028, but we'll see. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Hiddleston Times. Baby elephants engage in a playful fight in the jungle. So even the cutest animals fight sometimes. And trust me, when they do, it can be very, very adorable. Quote, seeing baby elephants playing and fighting in their natural habitat can be a heartwarming experience for many. With their playful antics, these gentle giants never fail to capture our hearts, end quote. But, you know, after fighting for a little bit, after going back and forth, eventually their parents did step in and actually have to stop them from fighting. Quote, They even pushed each other in a playful manner. Towards the end, the older members of the party had to intervene and stop the playful fight, end quote. And yeah, I get it. Sometimes you're playing with your cousins a little bit too rough and your parents have to step in and you guys may be enjoying it, but you may not realize how it looks to other people. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys fighting or read any of today's articles, there's a link below that like and subscribe button. And also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as a 
link to the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post a link to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So you can come straight to YouTube. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.